Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now. Here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to chat about one of the oldest and most successful board games of all time, chess. Chess has a very, very long history. It's been around for almost one and a half thousand years in one form or another. Uh, and it's spread across the world over the centuries, has seen it absolutely flourish uh, from kingly medieval courts through to today's modern tournament settings. There's a lot to talk about uh, with the history of chess. There's, of course, the game itself, um, how its pieces and its rules have changed. Then there's the way that it's spread all around the world, from India into Persia and the Middle East and from there into Africa and Europe. There are also its, uh, its its cousins and variants across East Asia, of course, but we're not really not really going to be getting into them today. Uh, we can also talk about the way that chess has evolved to become an international game with a world governing body. We can talk about its involvement in uh, in global politics, and of course, we can talk uh, all the way through to some of the very amusing controversies that it's had uh, in recent times. We've got all this and more to get across today. And I'm betting that you'll learn a thing or two about this game, even if you're, you know, reasonably well acquainted with chess already. Such as, for instance, did you know that there used to be a piece called the Elephant? Did you know that the Queen used to be amongst the worst of all the pieces, rather than being the best as it is today? Did you know that for a time, the very the very best players of chess in the world uh, saw playing with style as being more important than actually winning the game? There is, as I always say, so much for us to get across today. But before we begin, a couple of things here. Firstly... Uh, welcome along or welcome back to any new listeners who may be a fan of another historical strategy game, Age of Empires 2, who may have discovered the podcast thanks to my involvement in Hidden Cup 5. What a tournament. Uh, my thanks go out to Tristan, who is a keen listener of the show, I know, uh, for having me along as part of uh, as part of Hidden Cup. It was fantastic to, uh, to put those historical videos out. Um, and I also want to thank, before we begin, alert listeners James, uh, Saksham Gulati, and Matt Duncombe Squibb, all of whom suggested I should get across chess as a topic, and I'm bloody glad I did. This should be, this should be a pretty good episode, I reckon. And finally, one last thing um, before we start. This episode does assume that you have a, a very basic knowledge of the game of chess and its rules, including, you know, what the pieces do and, and how they move and how you win a game. So, uh, if you don't, if you're not super familiar with chess, um, here are the basics of chess in 50 words or less, right? Here we go. <clears throat> eight by eight board, 16 pieces aside, a king, a queen, two rooks, two bishops, two knights, and eight pawns. Each piece has its own way of moving. There's no hidden information, no luck or chance. You win by capturing the opponent's king, but many games end in draws. That's actually exactly 50 words. So that's not bad. No, it's not bad at all. Anyway, here we go. With that all said, let's get, uh, it's time to get into it here. Let's get underway. With history of chess, off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the 7th century CE to India to talk about a game called Chaturanga. Now, Chaturanga is uh, is not just the ancestor of chess, but it's also the ancestor of plenty other strate- plenty of other strategic board games. Some of those ones that developed in East Asia, as I say, uh, Shogi in Japan or Zhangui in, in China, Makruk in Thailand, Sitiyun in, in Myanmar. But this game's most important and most notable legacy uh, is, of course, that it would eventually give rise to the game of chess after it expanded into, into Persia and beyond, as, as we'll come to in due course. 
The word Chaturanga itself, it means four parts, and it refers to the four divisions of the historical Indian military. The infantry, the cavalry, the chariotry, and the elephantry, which I didn't realise was a word before I wrote this episode. And um, you can obviously quickly figure out that the infantry and the cavalry, uh, when it comes to the game of, uh, of Chaturanga and later on chess, infantry, obviously pawns, um, and the cavalry, obviously knights, right? But you might be interested to learn that rooks, uh, sometimes called castles, they began their life as chariots in Chaturanga, while bishops started off, of, of all things, as elephants. There was still a king in Chaturanga, but there wasn't actually there wasn't a queen. Uh, instead, uh, the queen actually started out as a minister or a general. We're going to talk about the development of the the modern chess pieces a little later on the episode. Don't you worry about it. But that, but that's the starting point, right? We've got pawns, we've got knights, we've got the king. But then we have uh, we have chariots, elephants, and ministers instead of uh, of, of rooks and, and bishops and queens. Anyway, uh, many rules of Chaturanga have unfortunately been lost to time, uh, but it did look a lot like chess. Uh, you'd move your 16 pieces around the 64-square board, manoeuvring them against your opponent's 16 pieces. And most importantly, when it comes to talking about the development of chess, Chaturanga as, a, as an old board, as, an, as a historical board game, it had two specific aspects to it that have gone on to differentiate it, and later on chess, from other board games uh, that were kicking around at the same time. Firstly, the first thing is that all of the pieces involved have different abilities or moves, right? When you compare that to, a, you know, another an, a, another old board game, something like Checkers, right, or, or Go or, or Backgammon, these pieces all do the same thing. They've all got exactly the same abilities. All the pieces are identical. Chess has different, or Chaturanga and then Chess, different pieces, different abilities. Um, and then, secondly, the game of Chaturanga and then later Chess, it is decided, it is won or lost based on the fate of one individual piece, the king. So these rules differences very much do set Chaturanga apart as the, you know, as the head of a, of a family of board games, I guess, from, uh, from many historical counterparts. Although Chaturanga still some, some key differences between it and the modern game of chess. It's not just the pieces that had different names, uh, in, uh, in Chaturanga. Also, they had very different abilities to their, to their modern day counterparts. Uh, for instance, uh, the minister, today's queen, it was just a really bad bishop. It was just a rubbish bishop. It could only move one diagonal square per turn back in the day. It was as distinct from today's queens, which can move any number of squares in any direction, right? Uh, the elephant, which would obviously go on to become the bishop later. I say obviously, it's not obvious at all, but it would go on to become the bishop in, in later years. Um, it could move exactly two squares, not one, not three, just two. And it could it could jump over other pieces like a modern knight. But some variants of Chaturanga had the elephant move diagonally into to, for two spaces. But others had it move orthogonally. So in straight lines, like straight lines up and down or left and right like a rook does today. But the the rest of the pieces were broadly speaking the same. Uh, the pawn could only move one square on its first move, unlike today when you can move it up to two. But again, we will we will talk about the development of the modern rules of chess later on. But uh, you know, more or less, Chaturanga isn't uh, isn't too different from from what chess looks like today. In in principle, at least, it, it's still got a lot in common. Uh, although the way that the board looked, interestingly, was quite different from a modern chess board today. It was still, as I say, it was still a, an 8x8 eight eight grid with 64 squares, but these squares weren't coloured in. They weren't checkered as they are today. That was a much later, that was a development that came much later on. Initially, Chaturanga and indeed early forms of chess, they were played on a simple grid without light or dark squares. Anyway, uh, Ch- Chaturanga, it dates back to at least the 7th century, as I mentioned, but, but honestly may go back even further than that, potentially thousands of years further back, back to the days of the Indus River Valley civilization. We're, we're not sure. But what we are sure of is that as the years passed, this game spread out from India into neighbouring Persia, where it continued its transformation towards what would ultimately be modern chess. Not too long after the emergence of Chaturanga, a game called Chatrang or Shatranj was being played in the Persian Sassanid Empire, introduced its thought by ongoing cultural exchange between uh, the two realms, between Persia and India. Indian diplomats may have may have brought the game with them and introduced it to the Persian courts, or perhaps merchants packed, it, packed up their Chaturanga sets with them as they hit the road to trade with the, with the people off to the west. But whatever the case, the game certainly caught on. It was played very popularly in the upper echelons of, of Persian society, and the Persians quickly made Chaturanga their own. Shatranj, as it became known as it spread further and further, 
It developed to become a lot closer to modern chess as the years passed. Um, the chariot became known as the rook, because rook is just the Persian word for chariot, but that certainly caught on. We still call that piece the rook today. Uh, although the bishop, still an elephant at this stage. Uh, more news on that front as it comes to hand. Uh, and the queen is still a minister for that case, or, or a councillor, and uh, still absolutely rubbish, still terrible, still only moving one diagonal square. Uh, while elephants can still only move two squares diagonally now, uh, they, they've, they've sorted that out. Uh, they can still jump over other pieces, though, like uh, like a knight can. Uh, but rooks in Chatrange, they uh, they move exactly the same as their as their modern counterparts. So the game was was modernising, and additionally, uh, the Persians introduced uh, more rules uh, that they developed around how the game could be ended. Uh, obviously, the main goal in a game of of chess or Chatrange is to to capture the enemy king. But rules surrounding kings and their capture were refined as time went on. Uh, rules like, for instance, very famously, warning an opponent when their king was in danger. Check. Uh, and not being allowed to move your king into check. Um, and, and also a rule called, uh, it was referred to as bearing the king. If you captured every single other piece on the board apart from the king, that counted as a win. As did, interestingly, this is not a rule that has stuck around, forcing a stalemate. If you were the person to force a stalemate on the opposing king, right, that actually resulted in a victory for you rather than a draw like stalemates are these days. But it wasn't just the rules of the game that began to shift and change under the Persians. It was also the culture surrounding Shatranj as well. Because Shatranj was used in Persia, just as Chaturanga was likely used in India, as not just a recreational pastime, but also as a way to teach military tactics and strategy. It was used as a, as a tool for scientific and, and mathematical inquiry. Today, obviously, chess puzzles are enormously popular in chess playing communities, and, and they have a very, very long history because for over a thousand years, people have written and published chess or chatrange problems. The oldest one that we have on record dates back to the ninth century. And this is in addition to naturally, a great many works that were written on chess theory. Even a thousand years ago, the, the tactics involved with opening moves, uh, the, the development of general strategies and approaches to the game, these are the things that chess scholars, I guess, the people who, who studied and analysed the game, the, the people who loved Chatrange so much, they wrote about these concepts and, and a great many more besides in, in enormous detail because Chatrange was an extremely highly esteemed game in Persia, immensely popular, particularly with the ruling classes, as I say. And the Persian chapter of the history of this game is a very important one as a result, so much so that even today in modern chess, we use terminology that first emerged during this period of the game's history. You may know the terms check and checkmate come from the Persian language. The Persian word for king is shah, and Shamat means the king is defeated. So Shah and Shamat eventually became Czech and Checkmate, even as Shatranj spread out from Persia and into other parts of the world, it retained some of this Persian terminology. And even today, we use these terms in modern chess gameplay. But how and also why, you may wonder, did chess spread from Persia to much of the rest of the world? Well, there is a simple enough answer for that, and it is the Islamic conquest of the Persian Sassanid Empire. The game of Shatranj found plenty of new fans amongst the conquering Arab Muslims who also enthusiastically played the game, again, at the highest levels of society. And during the Islamic Golden Age from around the 9th century onwards, there was an explosion of works written on, on Shatranj, with Persian texts being joined by Arabic texts as the game's popularity continued to grow. And as the Islamic world spread its dominance across more and more of the globe, Shatranj was taken along for the ride and introduced into more and more places. And in this way, it spread from Persia, through the Middle East, and across northern Africa as well. But here is, in my opinion at least, the most interesting thing about the history of, of chess during this period, at the height of the Islamic Golden Age. Today, when you think of a chess set, right, they're, they're, they're pretty standard in, in terms of how they look. Of course, you know, you can get all sorts of weird sets with the pieces represented in all sorts of different ways. You can get you get Star Wars chess sets, you get Batman chess sets, you can get chess sets made with shot glasses that you drink upon capture. But the standard chess set, the one that you think of by default, right, it's known as the Staunton set, it didn't come about until the 19th century, as, as we'll talk about in due course. But during this period uh, of Islamic dominance over the game, right, 
chess sets took very interesting forms indeed due to Muslim cultural norms at the time. There wasn't a standardised default set that had been laid out. There were all sorts of different variations on on how the pieces may be formed or shaped. But because of, um, I guess, certain interpretations of Islam, right, chess sets started to take, or or shatranj sets started to take on uh, a very unique look uh, during the Golden Age of Islam. Because certain interpretations of Islam forbid the artistic representation of living things like humans and animals. Even today, there are Muslims who believe that drawing or sculpting a person is haram. It's it's forbidden under Islamic law. So believe it or not, this restriction was actually applied to the creation of shatranj sets. You couldn't make pieces that looked like people or animals. So the pieces instead were all enormously abstract, right? They were only meant to very vaguely indicate what the pieces themselves were supposed to represent. So rather than the knight looking like a horse, like it does today, it instead was usually a cone with a little beak on it. Uh, The rook was a block with a little groove cut into it. Uh, The king and the minister, they were both represented by little thrones. So shatranj sets back in the day looked very different from modern chess sets, even if the rules were actually quite similar. Um, not only were all the, the pieces shaped very differently, uh, don't forget, also, the board is still just a grid. There are no coloured squares on it just yet. The final steps that this game took to become what we know today as chess, um, they began as Chatrange spread out even further out of the Islamic world and into Europe. And as it did, it changed its name one final time. Or actually, no, really, it changed its name a million final times, as we only call it chess in English. Um, the modern game has a, a ton of different names in all sorts of different languages. It's still called Shatranj uh, in, in Arabic. Um, the Shatranj the that we've been talking about is known as Old Shatranj in Arabic these days, so as to differentiate the two different forms of the game. But as the game spread throughout Europe, um, it picked up all sorts of new names. Obviously, chess in English, but uh, things like Echec in French, Schach in German, Aydres in Spanish, Skako in Italian, Shah in Croatian, and, of all things, Gwidbich in Welsh. Um, as you can tell, most of these terms have a shared linguistic origin, although not Welsh, obviously. Gwidbich is uh, the name of an, of an ancient Celtic board game, and this name was then later co-opted to describe chess as well. Anyway... With the spread of Chatrange into Europe, it began the final steps of its development, its, its, its transformation into the modern game of chess. The game entered Europe in three separate locations, spread, as I mentioned, by the Muslims who were so very bloody keen on it. Um, firstly, it entered the Byzantine Empire, who, of course, shared a border with the Islamic world to the east. Secondly, it entered the Italian peninsula via the Emirate of Sicily, the island at the, uh, the toe of Italy's boot, which for much of its history was under Islamic control. And thirdly, it entered Iberia, uh, modern-day Spain and Portugal, much of which, as many listeners will know, was also ruled by uh, by Muslims. The Islamic Andalusians uh, were in charge of Iberia for, for most of the medieval period. Um, and, and this, incidentally, is why the word for chess in Spanish and Portuguese sounds quite different to, to many other European languages. Um, Northern African Moors turned Chatrange into Chatarej, which then became the Spanish Ajedrez. Anyway, Chatrange chess now, it uh, it arrived in southern Europe in around the 10th century and spread throughout the European continent as it caught on and became more popular than ever. It was spread within Christendom by continued cultural and also sometimes military exchanges. For instance, it's thought that it, it was the invading Normans that brought chess into England after the Norman conquest of 1066, episode 76, get across it. Europeans loved the game just as much as the Arabs had, just as much as the Persians had, just as much as the Indians had, and it didn't take long before chess was an esteemed, kingly game across the continent. Chess became an entrenched part of the culture of medieval Europe. It was a huge part of European courtly society. Just as there were countless works of writing on on chess and, and its strategy in Arabic and Persian, so too did people start to write about the game in Europe, principally in Latin. Kings from Portugal to Russia became deeply invested in the game. There are, honestly, incredible artistic depictions of European European political elite playing chess. Um, And when I say incredible here, you may have picked up. I don't don't mean because of the skill of the artists involved. Uh, Actually, quite the opposite, in fact. Um, Do yourself a favour. Go online. Have a look at these pictures, these medieval representations of people playing chess. They are 
very, very funny. Um, you'll notice the same thing in all of them because these artists, um, look, I'm, I'm not trying to have a go at them, all right? But, you know, this is, this is before many artists had grasped the finer intricacies of things like vanishing points and, you know, perspective-based drawings. And so these pictures are drawn with the two players standing alongside what I can only describe as a chessboard arranged like a game of Connect Four, standing vertically, standing the board stands upright between the two people playing it. It's uh, it's very funny. You you should go and have a look at these pictures. Anyway, as a as a popular recreational pastime across Europe and North Africa and the Middle East and into the subcontinent, chess in all its forms throughout the medieval period had never done better for itself. However, I will say. There were those who weren't so into chess, particularly in Europe, and would you like to guess to which organisation these people were generally attached? Did you guess the Catholic Church? Yes, indeed, well done. Various medieval Christian leaders attempted to ban chess altogether throughout Christendom, uh, especially when the game became a very popular way for people to gamble. Gambling on chess games invariably would lead to disputes, which invariably would lead to fighting, which led, believe it or not, to some people in the church to denounce chess as a sinful, violent, and debaucherous game. Think of that. Think of the nerds that play chess these days and how they're just, they would have been amongst the wildest party animals going around 800 years ago. Can you imagine? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. But let's leave the medieval period behind now, with chess firmly established as an intercontinental pastime, to talk about the way the game evolved finally to become what it is today. And we'll do this by uh, firstly talking about the pieces, and then after that get into the rules themselves that change, by which stage we will have a game that more or less looks like modern chess. So firstly, the names of these pieces and how they changed. They changed into the familiar pieces that we have today. In Europe, the minister or councillor generally uh, became the queen, although in in many parts of the world, even today, the piece that we know as the queen is is still a minister-like figure, uh, such as in uh, Persian and in Arabic and in Turkish, right? It's not called uh, it's not called a queen. It's called a vazir or a wazir or a vizier, respectively, uh, which means vizier, advisor, right? Not not a queen. And you can sort of see how this this change was made, right? You've got someone who is at the at the right hand of the king, someone who's very close to the king. You can see how that became a queen in some cultures, but remained an advisor in others. A um, little bit harder to explain the bishop because the elephant was left behind and instead became a bishop. I, I don't know how we went from pachyderm to religious leader. I guess because they didn't really have elephants in Europe, they needed to find something a little more relatable. I don't know. Maybe the bloke who came up with the idea that it should be a bishop, maybe he knew a bishop that had really big ears and thought it would be a great gag, and then it stuck. Who knows? Um, in French and Romanian, uh, the bishop isn't a bishop. Uh, the French In French, it's a fool. In Romanian, it's a, it's a madman. So there really isn't any rhyme or reason to it. These pieces, they just changed and evolved in their, in their appearance and, and their names. Um, and similarly, as the elephant became the bishop, the chariot, the Persian rook, it, uh, it came to be depicted as a tower or a castle. Um, and many people in English call the rook a castle. It, it, it's not its formal name, but people tell, still understand what, what you're talking about if you say castle instead of rook. But essentially in every other major European language, it's not known as a castle or a rook. It's known as a tower. Um, 
again, I guess, you know, Europe isn't known for its uh, its war chariots. Uh, so I guess they had to find something else to call it. And I don't know why we're the odd ones out in English, calling it a rook or a castle. It, it is almost universally across much of Europe and throughout other parts of the world called a tower. But yeah, I don't know. We landed on rook. But it wasn't just their names that changed. Uh, I talked before about the Islamic restrictions on the depictions of living beings. Well, these, restri- these restrictions did not exist in Christian culture. And so, as chess took hold in Europe, the pieces changed from abstract cones and blocks to becoming much more recognisable as physical representations of what the pieces themselves were based on in real life. The king became a figure with a crown, the queen was represented with a coronet, the knight was given a horse's head, the bishop was given a bishop's hat, um, and the rook started to be shown as a crenellated tower. And also, a key development, the, uh, the, the boards that they stood on changed as well. It wasn't just the pieces, but the board also began to be decorated with a checkered pattern, which of course has lasted through to this very day. It's very, very rare to find a, che- a chess set that isn't decorated with light and dark squares. But when, when it comes to decoration, right, I will tell you this, both the pieces and the boards that the pieces stood on became more ornate and more decorative as time went on. Um, and this was because a fancy chess set became a, a symbol of great prestige in, in a royal court or indeed just a, a wealthy household. So you can only imagine what a medieval king would say were he to see the, the splendor and the grandeur of modern chess sets today. Think of the craftsmanship that goes into today's chess sets and today's chess pieces. Think of, the, uh, think of what it would be like sitting down across from a medieval king and watching, watching him gasp in awe at your officially licensed The Simpsons chess set. But no, in, in all seriousness, medieval chess sets were often made as works of art. Va- valuable materials, particularly ivory, were used in their creation. Um, and uh, while this was the time that uh, chess sets began to take on that iconic look that we that we know today, we're still a long way away from the Staunton set, I will say that. And we're also quite a way away from the pieces being coloured white and black. Because towards the end of the medieval period in Europe, um, chess sets weren't white and black, they were red and black. And the reason for this is, this is fascinating, the reason for this is, the people who, the, the scribes who would write down, they would transcribe the games, right, the moves that, that, uh, that people took while playing, they would write the moves down in red and black ink because those were the two colours of ink that were most widely available. So the pieces were made to reflect the colours of ink that were used to transcribe games of chess. Isn't that fair? I thought that was so interesting, the, the, the reason behind the, uh, the colours of the, uh, the original chess sets uh, back, in, back in medieval times. Anyway... Those are the pieces. Let's talk about how the game itself actually changed as we move out of the medieval era. Because one of the biggest issues with medieval chess is, or was, that the games took ages. Ages and ages and ages. Today we've got blitz chess, we've got bullet chess, we've got Armageddon chess. These games are measured in minutes. But back then, a game of chess could take, this is not an exaggeration, a game of chess could take days. So, because of this, around the 14th century, there was a concerted effort to speed up the game of chess more generally, and this was done with a few changes to the rules. Now, the first and perhaps the most notable change made to the rules of chess in order to speed it up was allowing pawns to move two squares, not just one, if they haven't yet moved. And this allowed the action to start a little faster, as pawns would of course meet in the middle of the board twice as fast as before. People also started experimenting with allowing the king to jump over other pieces one single time um, to, allow it to, to allow it to get into a, a safer part of the board. This was called the king's leap, and of course it eventually led to uh, the modern chess technique, technique known as castling, where you move a king and a rook simultaneously as part of one move to better protect the king. Uh, the queen was also given extra mobility, and... Uh, it's it's at this point that I'm I'm sort of realizing that this sounds like I'm reading out patch notes for a video game here. You know, pawns get buffed with extra movement speed. Kings kings get a once per game ultimate ability. Uh, queen mobility gets buffed to make the piece more more what competitive in in high level ranked play. Seriously, that's what happened. That's actually what happened. The queen was allowed to move an extra square and jump as it did so, which started the long process that saw the queen eventually buffed to the point that it is. Undoubtedly, the the most valuable piece on the board. Devs, please nerf. Queen OP. 
Um, but this this process of, of buffing the queen, empowering the queen, uh, it was mainly carried out in Spain, in the kingdom of Valencia. And it was in Valencia that a very, uh, a very important variant of chess began to emerge towards the end of the 15th century. And this variant was called Mad Queen's Chess. And it caught on in a major way uh, because what it did more than anything else was speed the game up and make it a lot more exciting than ever before. In Mad Queen's Chess, the queen could move in any direction, diagonally or orthogonally, and for any distance. And this did three things, one of which we've already talked about. It made the game a lot faster. It made them a lot more exciting. It made it a lot easier to engineer a a checkmate in a timely fashion. But it also made the queen, in video game terms, completely broken. The the queen overnight became the most powerful piece on the board. Um, And in addition to that, it also made the strategy of getting a pawn to the back rank, right? You can promote a pawn if you manage to get it to to your opponent's first rank, as far away from you as as it's possible for a pawn to move. If you do that, you can promote a pawn uh, to a queen. You can also promote it to like a knight, a bishop, or a rook, which doesn't happen very often. But all of a sudden, this became a a much more viable strategy than before because you were rewarded uh, if you promoted a pawn with a, a piece that, you know, actually did something, a piece that could command a vast amount of control over much of the board instead of just a a minister that could move one diagonal square. So in a very real sense, Mad Queen's chess was a game changer. It changed the game of chess forever. Gone was the time of, lo- of, of days-long games. Games of chess could instead be finished in a much more reasonable time, and it wasn't long before this variant, Mad Queen's chess, became the default rule set for chess more broadly. And so, as we move into the 16th century, the rules of of chess have been entrenched. The pieces were called what they're called today. They did what they do today. And aside from a few minor rules changes about things like stalemates and whatever else, chess had, more or less, reached its current form. And into the early modern and modern periods, chess retained and honestly expanded the popularity that it had enjoyed during the medieval period. More people played it than ever before. More people thought about it and wrote about it than ever before. And of course, people became better at it than ever before. People were encouraged to get good at chess. It was seen as, uh, you know, far from being the, the, the barbarous and debaucherous pastime that it had been seen during the medieval period, it was seen as something that improved your mind, something that was good for, for mind, body, and spirit. And so it was played enthusiastically in coffee houses and cafes by the rich and the poor. Well, mainly the rich, but, you know, there, there were people on, on all levels of, of, of class society that, uh, that, that got into it. And people gained a, a deeper and, and deeper understanding of the, of the intricacies of the game. It remained, uh, of course, uh, still a very big part of royal culture and maintained a huge amount of interest at the, uh, at the upper levels of society, um, as was evidenced in the 1770s with the unveiling of... Uh, well, you can go back and listen to what I, what I honestly think might be one of the best episodes I've ever put out, episode 95, The Mechanical Turk at Across It. Uh, you can hear about the mysterious chess-playing automaton that was first debuted in the Austrian Imperial Court. It baffled and bamboozled the audiences that came to see it play in the late 18th century. It was a, it was a public spectacle, and it drew thousands and thousands of people to its public demonstrations. Do go and listen to episode 95. It's, it, it is, it is, it's one of the better episodes, for sure. Um, and, uh, and also will go some way in, in sort of supplementing what, what we're talking about here with the history of chess, showing you just how uh, popular and how important this game was uh, throughout uh, various periods of history. Anyway, in, uh, in the late 18th century, uh, there was also another interesting development when it came to chess, not one to do with necessarily uh, you know, the pieces or the rules or anything else, but uh, when it came to the way the game was played, a philosophy, an approach to playing chess known as romantic chess. Now, this wasn't chess, you know, played by candlelight with, uh, with, uh, with, with roses and, and smooches and whatever else. No. This was chess that emphasised daring and dashing play. It emphasised playing with style rather than playing to win. This was a very entertaining and very lively form of the game, even if it wasn't, you know, particularly technically sound. But think, just think about how entertaining, for instance, the the Harlem Globetrotters are on the basketball court and how they'd, you know, get absolutely smashed if they came up against, I don't know, the LA Lakers or something. Romantic chess was a spectacle. It was something that people put on to, to entertain and delight. And the most famous example of romantic chess is doubtlessly a game played in 1851 
by Adolf Anderson and Lionel Kizaritsky, uh, which is still studied today. It's still analysed these days. It's known as the immortal game. But people love to win. And as popular and as entertaining as romantic chess was, it was very soon superseded in the 19th century by competitive chess. Major European chess tournaments began to be held in the early 1800s, but they faced some significant teething issues. And the biggest one of these was how bloody long the games took. Because even if they weren't taking days, they were still taking hours and hours and hours. Players would sit there for hours and hours and hours to think about one single move in some cases. In fact, the Immortal game, the, the, the one I just mentioned there, it was played as a casual game at the 1851 London Chess Tournament as probably a way to pass the time. Maybe Anderson and Kisaritsky were sick of waiting for the current game to finish playing. They were just doing something to amuse themselves. So no, something had to be done. Something had to be done to speed up tournament chess. And this resulted in a breakthrough development that enabled competitive tournament chess to be played properly. Time limits were enforced for players. Initially, they had a certain amount of time in which they had to make a a minimum number, a certain number of moves, and they would be rewarded for doing so by being given extra time. So, for instance, they had to make 30 moves, let's say, in an hour, and fail to to make the required number of moves in the allotted time would result in a penalty, a penalty taking the form of a monetary fine. And what's really funny about these monetary fines is that they just did not work because the best players in the world at this time were generally very rich. They were rich men with plenty of time on their hands, enough time to get good at chess. They didn't have to work or toil away. They were gentlemen of leisure with deep pockets. And uh, as a result, they just paid the fines that they were issued without any problems. Oh, okay, yep, no worries. How much is that? Oh, thanks for that. That's fine. I'll just, uh, I'll just buy myself a time extension here. So for a, for a while, in a very real sense, chess was a pay-to-win game. Imagine that these days. Imagine if in a, I don't know, a professional sport, you could just pay to put a couple of extra minutes on the clock or something like that. Unbelievable. Pay-to-win chess. Anyway, Because of the ineffectiveness of this approach to trying to get slow players to hurry up, tournament organisers looked for other solutions. And for a while, what they did was just punish people with forced forfeitures. If you played too slowly, you were, you, you forfeited. You were forced, you you would take, you were given a forced loss. And uh, this did not sit very well with the rich blokes that were playing, that were playing chess at the time. They didn't mind paying for extra time, but they weren't going to lose games because of their slow play. And so, a new approach was taken, a, uh, a, a, a an approach that was a little fairer, a little more forgiving, but still, at the end of the day, one that forced people to play a lot faster. In 1861, at a chess tournament in Bristol, in Britain, for the very first time, sand hourglasses were used to track and to limit how much time players used while playing games of chess. And it wasn't long after that that specialised clocks were developed. Uh, These clocks had two timers next to each other, but only one timer would count down at a given time, and with the press of a button, that timer would stop, and the other timer would begin counting down. And these clocks, called chess clocks, are still in use today. Although these days you usually usually use a digital clock rather than an analogue one, and uh, chess clocks will often add a couple of seconds onto your time whenever you hit the button uh, so as to, you know, account for the time it takes to move your hand and hit the button or whatever else. But it also means that if you play fast enough, you can actually gain time on your chess clock. And yes, okay, before all the chess nerds get into my inbox telling me about Bronstein delay, I know, come on, mate, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to keep things bloody simple here. Anyway, with chess clocks, the world of competitive chess was often away because now there was a fair and an equitable way to make sure that games didn't last for hours and hours and hours. And as a result, the back half of the 19th and the first half of the 20th century saw chess transform like never before. Dedicated chess professionals arose, studying and understanding the game like no one had ever done. The bloke I mentioned before, Adolf Anderson, uh, Paul Morphy, Johann Zuckertort, uh, and and of course the first official world chess champion, a bloke by the name of Wilhelm Steinitz. And uh, also at this point, actually, we should we should come back to another bloke that I've already mentioned. Um, he was around a little bit earlier than than the, the people I just talked about just now, but uh, a fellow by the name of Howard Staunton, who had a very very important influence on the game of chess with the development of 
the Staunton chess set. In the 1840s, a bloke named Nathaniel Cook came up with a chess set with, uh, with clearly differentiated and unambiguous piece designs. These pieces were designed so as to be more or less impossible to confuse with one another. These, these pieces were of different size, they had very clearly different shapes, and the idea was you weren't going to mix them up. At a glance, you could tell which piece was which. Cook managed to get Staunton to endorse this design, and it quickly caught on as the default design for chess sets, as Staunton was something of a chess celebrity in, in his heyday. And as a result, the Staunton chess set is, even today, the one that you think of when you imagine chess pieces. It's the one that's used in major international chess tournaments. It is the standard default normal chess set. Staunton did more than this, though. He did more than uh, than promulgate the uh, the default chess set for uh, for the game. He also organised that 1851 uh, tournament in London, the one that I was talking about uh, before. He was a huge figure in the history of chess, enormously influ- influential on, on the development of the game. But anyway, with, uh, with new generations of chess masters continuing to attain deeper understandings and increased skill levels, chess continued to flourish uh, throughout the 19th and into the 20th centuries, the, uh, the various schools of thought and philosophies that dominated uh, the approach to the game meant that it went through different eras, um, with, with, which all had very exciting names, the scientific era, the hypermodern era, the new dynamism era. But uh, we're not going to go into too much detail. We're not going to go too deep onto what, into what these eras involve because, uh, well, honestly, we'd be here all day for one and also because I'd make an absolute fool of myself after a brief scan through the hypermodernist Bogo Indian defense. Honestly, I think I would rather just go back to nuclear physics. Um, but, uh, but these changing chess eras gave rise to huge names in chess history. Uh, Jose Raul Capablanca, Aaron Nimzovic, uh, Richard Retti. They all continued to revolutionize the game into the 20th century. And in the 20th century, 1924 to be specific, um, another enormous milestone took place in the history of this game when the international governing body for chess, FIDE, was established. Uh, FIDE oversaw and still oversees international tournament play and the awarding of titles such as world champion and chess grandmaster. It's uh, it's not only still around these days, but also coming up on its 100th birthday, of course, uh, established in 1924. It's 2024 this year. So uh, happy birthday, FIDE, I guess, in a couple of months. But before we talk about chess in the modern era, um, 100 years on from the, the establishment of FIDE, there is one very important chapter of chess history left, left for us to discuss, the Cold War. Because after the end of the Second World War, chess entered into a period of near total Soviet domination. And this, like everything else between everything else that the Russians were good at, it caused significant political tension between the USSR and the US. After the Second World War, FIDE set up a newly organized system for their world championship, and the Ruskies just could not lose. There was Mikhail Botvinnik in the 1940s, there was Vasily Smisov in the 1950s, there was Boris Spassky in the 1960s. The, the Soviets are just, they are just unbeatable. Until a young American by the name of Bobby Fischer came along, who was so much better at chess than everyone else, it was unbelievable. This bloke put up record results, sweeping the opposition, often going undefeated in major tournaments. He was in a league of his own. And in 1972, he beat Spassky at the World Championship in Iceland in a match that was, in a very real sense, seen as being part of the ongoing Cold War between the Russians and the Americans. Fisher won and brought a huge amount of glory uh, to his home nation of the United States, but this glory was short-lived because Fisher was... He was a weird bloke, man. He really was a, he was an odd fella because um, as soon as he claimed the title of world champion, he stopped playing competitively. He refused to attempt to defend his title in 1975, and this meant that it, would, it was awarded by default to the Soviet Anatoly Karpov, who went on to be a massive star in his own right. So while the Americans won the space race and while they won many other uh, important aspects of the Cold War, like, I guess, the war itself... They definitely lost the, uh, the, the chess aspect of the Cold War. Karpov went on to dominate chess throughout the 1980s, continuing the era of Russian dominance, before he too was dethroned by the famous Russian Garry Kasparov. 
Kasparov is another all-time great. He is still the record holder for most consecutive professional tournament victories at 15, and he still holds the record for the longest period as world number one at 255 months. However, as we move into the 1990s, a new challenger was emerging, taking the fight to international grandmasters everywhere, quickly becoming known as the very best, like no one ever was. And that challenger was computers everywhere. Today, in the 21st century, computers are far better at chess than even the best humans can hope to be. And this was first put on show in 1997 when Kasparov himself was beaten by IBM's chess-playing computer, Deep Blue. This was a watershed moment, not just in chess, but in computing more generally. And since then, chess computers have only gotten better and better at an impossibly fast rate. Even the world's best human plays these days pale in comparison to the bits and the bytes and the boops of modern chess computers. Today, chess is a game enjoyed by millions of people all over the world. It's played at all levels by all sorts of people. It's streamed on Twitch. It's depicted in popular TV shows. It's even making international headlines every now and again when when high-level scandals arise. You might remember a couple of years ago in 2022 when a bloke named Hans Niemann was thought to have cheated in a major chess tournament when he defeated the legendary Magnus Carlsen. Uh, the world took great delight in the idea that Neiman may have cheated via the use of vibrating anal beads. Although I, I should be careful what I say say here, though, because Neiman he uh, he did sue his detractors for what was it, a hundred million dollars, I think. And look, as as you know, generous as my Patreon supporters are, I uh, yeah, I, I don't have that kind of cash laying around. So I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll withdraw that statement. Uh, well done, Mr. Neiman. Congratulations on your Highly improbable victories, and whatever your bedroom proclivities are, there there are certainly no judgments here. But uh, no, chess these days, it is dominated by that bloke that I just mentioned, uh, the bloke that Neiman is said to have cheated against, Magnus Carlsen. He is, he's, closing on, uh, he's closing in on Kasparov's record as the longest reigning world number one. He completely dominates uh, global competitive chess. He is seen as the, the, the best of the best, perhaps the greatest chess player to have ever lived. He has the highest individual ranking that anyone has ever achieved. Although, right now, interestingly, he is not the defending world champion. Because, and this is only going to probably make you realise just how good this bloke is, last year, in 2023, he declined to show up and defend his title, saying that he didn't have the motivation to do so. And when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer, as the ancient and extremely reliable text Die Hard 1988 tells us. But today, even after over a thousand years, chess is more popular and more played than ever before in its history. It is an immensely skill-testing game. With no luck or chance or hidden information, it teaches tactics and strategy, problem-solving and critical thinking, analytical skills, foresight, caution, and patience. So it won't surprise you to learn that I'm absolutely rubbish at it. Uh, never never been able to understand it or get into it properly. Although I, I, I did enjoy the anal beads controversy and many other hilarious aspects of modern chess culture, um, like the use of the bong cloud attack opening that is a real chess technique although not a very good one um or this one was this one was fantastic um tigran petrosian's pee pee in your pampers controversy i will uh, i will let you look that one up for yourself and uh, and enjoy it in your own time oh boy it's uh, it's really good uh but look <clears throat> there aren't many ancient board games that have survived through to the modern day, and of those that have, chess is undoubtedly the most widely successful, well-known, and popular of all. But we're still waiting for the latest patch notes. Come on, devs, the the, the queen is still completely broken. When is she going to get nerfed?
But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of chess. And as I almost always feel um, when I do episodes like this, I just don't... I feel like I barely scratched the surface, man. There is so much... I feel like maybe we could do an entire episode on the pee in your pampers scandal. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good. There's a terrific write-up on Reddit. Um, just... If, if you don't mind having this in your Google search history, do type pee in your pampers into Google and you'll uh, you'll bask in the glory of that controversy. It's so funny. Anyway, thanks for listening to another episode of Half-Assed History. Um, it's really, it really has been great to have you along. It always is. Whether you're an old listener or a new listener or someone who falls somewhere in between, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, I do hope to have your continued company in the weeks that follow. Um, I love I love hearing from people. I've gotten plenty of emails this week with all sorts of uh, terrific topic topic suggestions. So I'll be diving into them and seeing if we can uh, put up uh, put up one of them next week. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, there's quarter hour history and monuments coming your way throughout the week. Uh, but do get in touch. Halfhousehistory.net. Use the contact form there to get in touch with me. Um, I want to let people know that uh, in the coming uh, months, I'll say I'll give myself some some runway here. In the coming months, um, the merch shop will be changing, and I can't guarantee exactly what it's going to look like after it does. Um, the, the good news is that I will be attempting to make it a little more affordable for Australian listeners, because I know the postage uh, for Tea Public is, is a little murderous at times. Um, so, but it may involve, uh, changes in the avail- availability of certain designs. So, uh, you, you don't, it's not a huge rush, but I would say that if there's, if there are some designs or some, some objects in the current merch shop that you've got your eye on, um, go and snag them because they're not going to be around forever. Almost certainly, uh, when the merch shop is updated, uh, there'll be a there'll be significant changes to uh, to what's available there. So maybe go over there and uh, go over there and have a look at uh, what's available. But if you want to support the show uh, in a way that uh, doesn't, and well, actually no, it does end up with you having merch delivered to you because if you support the show on Patreon, free merch is sent to you at no additional cost on top of the one on, on top of the the, the the subscription price to to being part of the uh, the patron. You just get extra bonus merch. Doesn't cost you anything extra on top of what you already pay. Um, and in doing so, not only we gain access to ad-free listening, uh, but also uncut episodes and all sorts of other behind-the-scenes stuff, early access to shows as well. Uh, and it's also the best way to make sure that these episodes keep coming out week in and week out. Um, the, the Patreon supporters are the biggest spur to my flank in making sure these episodes exist. Thank you so very, very much to uh, the Patreon supporters. In particular, there are a couple that I want to thank. Um, Yermaine Araya and Tobias J. Anderson have just signed up recently. So thank you, Yermaine and Tobias. And I also want to thank Ronan Birch, who has upped their contribution to the um, uh, to the Patreon, uh, moving up a tier, which I'm deeply appreciative of. So thank you, Ronan. Thank you, Tobias. Thank you, Yermaine. If you want to join their exalted ranks, patreon.com slash history. Anyway, apart from that, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. If you're a new viewer coming into us from Hidden Cup, hope you stick around. And if you're an old viewer who's been around for thousands of years, Hope to see you back here again next week for more nonsense as well. And in the meantime, leaving you the question, of course, posed on Reddit as we do every week. This one comes to us from Corner of the Oval. It's a chess-related question, as I'm sure you guessed. Corner of the Oval wants to know, how do Australians manage to play chess without completely confusing themselves after putting their opponents in check? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.